either I have to shock people with electrodes or I have to create something that they can walk into safely. Design, design, design. Design research podcast. Hello and welcome to the Design Research Podcast of the Design Academy Eindhoven. My name is Arif Kronbeitz um, and I'm here together with uh, Lisbeth Fitt of the Knowledge Circle. Welcome, Lisbeth. Hello, Arif. Maybe you can give us a very short introduction about the Knowledge Circle and this podcast. Okay, um, but the Knowledge Circle of the Design Academy consists of several people, bodies, so I have, of course, I have to look to the audience, uh, um, within the academy who try to stimulate and promote research and, um, well, one of his things is to make it visible, more visible than just the outcome of the, yeah, whatever outcome there is. So that's why we thought podcasts were uh, a good idea because we can go beyond the visual into the, really the process behind the, the outcome. And uh, we will do that today with our two guests, two graduates of the Masters, um, Camilla Kennedy of Information Design. Welcome, Camilla. Uh, yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, Congratulations. And also congratulations to Marianne Drews of uh, Social Design Masters. Hello. And both your projects are around here. We've just seen them. Um, but we'll ask you to quickly introduce your projects yourself. Maybe we can start with Camilla. Okay, that's fine. So for my project, I focused on quantum gravity, which is typically what people think of as like a really complicated subject. And when they hear the term quantum gravity, they frequently just totally turn off. Like their eyes glaze over. Unless you're a, unless you're a physicist, it's really not something most people are interested in. And I was interested in it, so I was reading a, some books on it, and I became frustrated because the diagrams that the scientists would provide in the books would actually cloud the subject further. So I would be reading the text, it would make sense, and then the diagrams would make it make less sense. So instead of being angry all the time, I thought, why should I should just do something about it? So I did a thesis, and I, the conclusion that I came up with was that interactivity, storytelling, and using metaphors was the best way to describe something that we'll never actually be able to see, at least in our lifetime, maybe six lifetimes from now, we'll be able to directly visualize or directly see um, quantum gravity, but because it's so incredibly tiny, um, it's not possible. So I have a, a cloud that visually separates people, and then there's a story that plays within the cloud that describes quantum gravity in approachable um, terms. Yep. So you say there's a cloud, but maybe can you describe how your project looks like or what we experience? Yeah, so what you experience is you walk in and it's a water vapor fog, and the water vapor also works as a metaphor because it's the... Um, uh, molecularization, if you want, of water itself. And then, so you walk in, and it's a dense white fog that you walk into. If, and then, as you walk in, there's a noise that plays that goes kind of wee. And the noise in the background is, um, is, uh, is actually the scale of the universe in sonic terms. And then that plays for a minute. It's like a minute of intro, which is the Big Bang from the beginning until now. And then I begin talking, and I describe um, quantum gravity saying that it's very small, and research is there, but it's hard to describe, and I explain some, uh, some qualities of quantum gravity, and at the end I tell people, but the, really the best way to describe it is just like a fuzziness. 
and then it ends, and then there's a couple of seconds of sound that are the sound of the gravitational wave that was detected by Virgo and LIGO, and then it ends. So it sounds almost like a heartbeat, which I think is quite nice for the human scale, and then it ends, and that's the installation. Yep. Yeah, we just walked into the room. It's actually the first one as you enter the exhibition, and I found it an incredibly uh, calming experience also because you can't really see that far, right? I mean, I, can, I could barely see my hand in there, and that makes you focus on the, the audio quite well. Um, uh, yeah, one of the topics, I think, of this, this podcast episode is kind of this invisible abstract uh, notion that also plays a big role in uh, Mariana's project. Could you also describe your project very quickly? Sure. Um, yeah, the thing you were just mentioning, this invisible um, aspect of my project is actually called peak soil, which is a term that describes that in about 60 years, projected by the United Nations, uh, all our soils globally will be depleted. So there's no more fertility in soils. And my project basically reacts to this urgency and to this threat that we are not really aware of by challenging conventional ways of um, looking at soil, of engaging with it, and understanding soil. Um, I'm doing this um, by using an imaging method called chromatography, which um, visually translates the condition of the soil instead of just looking at data. So I think it's a very uh, useful way of giving a tool to people to understand uh, such a complex material as soil. And I'm applying this knowledge um, in a kind of test field where I'm exploring the potential of tra transplanting soil. So uh, based on a research that says that um, mixing different soils can influence them in a positive way, um, I'm exploring how this can be a potential for yeah, the future threat of peak soil. And maybe for the listeners and the ones that haven't seen your project, Uh, chromatography, I think, um, basically means, um, let's say, uh, deconstructing a, a material with fluids, right? And I think the result, uh, you could kind of compare it almost to cutting open a tree, um, and you, you have kind of this, yeah, this, this round, like, brown plate that, that comes from yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of people actually compare it to cut, cutting open a tree or also the iris of an eye. So it's really this kind of circular image where you can uh, see different colors, different structures evolving. Um, yeah, almost like uh, the different elements of the soil travel in a different speed on the paper and leave a trace. So it's becoming this very uh, unique image, almost like a fingerprint or like a DNA. Um, yeah, I wonder if you both could say something about why this topic for you. Maybe Camilla, can you start? Yeah, so as I said, I was interested in physics um, and I became frustrated with what was there. But in my research, I also started finding that it wasn't just quantum gravity that had this problem. Physicists kind of across the board had this problem. And even uh, like the way that gravity, like the typical gravity that you would think of, like that keeps you on the earth or... Um, is the rules for black holes, but they, what scientists use are like the same image over and over. So it's not even a problem that there are a bunch of images or a bunch of diagrams, but they're wrong. It's just that scientists are literally using like the same 10 over and over again. And so for me, um, I was interested in this because it was a very complex problem and it was something that I was like, I couldn't keep myself from working on. So it just became sort of an obsession for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, for me, it's actually a bit similar. I think I have the tendency to always start with a topic, but then dig deeper, deeper, deeper. And then I end up with this topic of soil, which is actually related to so many other aspects that I was looking at before, like agriculture or uh, rural exodus and so many other issues that are happening. And for me, soil was um, or still is this very fundamental material that is um, raising so many discussions about other topics that I also got obsessed with it. <laughs> Yeah, I find that like the deeper I researched into something, the more it brings up um, connections to even far-flung subjects, and you just keep going, keep going, and then you realize that like everything is fracular. You know, it's like you, the more you zoom in, the more is there, and it's really interesting. But it's it's hard to like recognize the rabbit hole while you're there as well, and like know when to stop is what I had fun kind of figuring out. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that that process of doing research? Yeah, so in my case, it was um, I started out by collecting all of the um, diagrams and images that I could, starting all the way back with uh, Johannes Kepler and Isaac Newton. So I read their manuscripts, so Isaac Newton's Principia and uh, Johannes Kepler's um, Harmonicus Mundi, and well, I'm forgetting the other one, but looking at the diagrams that they were using and how they were describing the world as they were seeing it. And so I started there and then collected stuff all the way until now and looking at examples at how people were connecting things and, um, and showing things. And then after that, then reading lots of contemporary papers and looking at how scientists now are talking about um, quantum gravity. And I went to lectures as well, so it was just a lot of collection. But then once I found an image, then finding the source of that image was also a thing. So it's like every time I found something, I had to double check and make sure that it was accurate. So it was like I find an image and, I, and it has this name on it, but is it really that person that made that image? Or and it just you know it's a constant process of double checking and double checking and double checking. Yeah, if that explains it. So yeah. what you call this archival research or? Yeah, in that sense. Yeah, building uh, building an archive and then building an archive of names and sources and places where the image is used. Um, or where the type of diagram or example is used. Yeah, so it would be, yeah, I have an archive now. Yeah, I never thought of myself as an archivalist, but here we are. <laughs> um, in my case, um, I think what drove my research was uh, a bit jumping from discipline to discipline because I was looking at soil from very different angles. So I was uh, talking to farmers about their daily life, basically, but I was also looking a lot at the myth of soil. So, for example, looking at the biblical story of Adam and Eve and how Adam is formed from soil, like these ideas, these stories behind soil. But then, of course, I was also in touch with many, many scientists that deal with soil in various ways. So I think my research was basically really like exploding in many, many directions. And then I was trying to find kind of a red thread for myself, um, which was very difficult. But... <laughs> Um, I think that's also the beauty of, of my project and the, uh, of soil in general, that it um, is this complex matter that you can connect to all these um, disciplines and that basically almost everyone can relate to. Um, so the chromatography method that you use to analyze the soil, um, it's an older method that you, you told us this before. I think maybe in the 1950s it was common and then in the global south it is still quite common. And, and earlier you mentioned that there is a different way of analyzing soil um, taking place like in the West, for example, or in like this, this environment. But why did you choose to go back to an older method? 
um, because I think the way we analyze soil now, which is basically based on data and percentages, um, this method of chromatography is more about uh, also intuitively looking at an image and um, understanding it more through uh, a different kind of gaze, not just looking at numbers. Um, it's easier for people to understand also if they don't have scientific background. So I think this, was, uh, this had so much potential for me to bring it back into our world and also to present it as uh, yeah, a counter-proposal to our rational scientific uh, approach to everything, basically. Um, the reason I'm asking also, if I can ask one more question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, it's not, it was not really about the content related to what you were saying, but I was wondering how in, in, in both of your cases, um, your research process or method led to a certain outcome. What was the relation between the methods that you used and eventually the outcome that you have? Or is this too fast, Arif? <laughs> no? Or you mean, how did my research lead to where I ended up? It's, yes, yeah. so how did it evolve? Yeah, so my research, of course, was interesting and I fell down that rabbit hole quite fast. But, of course, I'm a designer, so I have to find a way to express my research as an information designer to the outside world. And so I started with experimenting with uh, different things. So very early on, I realized trying to come up with a new diagram was not going to be better because scientists have that area kind of covered and my main problem was that the diagrams weren't very good um, because they expressed something that was unseeable so I started making interactive uh, experiences and so I did some with styrofoam, I did some with strings um, but quickly I realized that either I have to shock people with like electrodes or I have to create something that they can walk into safely and then find another way for them to experience in their brain what's happening. And storytelling was the way to do that for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was trial and error from the research. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in my case, um, it was um, the attempt to put in action what I researched. And I think in some ways, this was maybe also in a more naive way, I would call it, which I think has also a lot of potential because, uh, for example, when I heard about the chromatography in the first case, I just started to try it and there was a lot of things that went wrong but they also taught me a lot um, and the same with uh, the transplantation of the soil so I just started working with the material of soil in a maybe yeah, naive way but uh, through this um, I think all these failures that led me to the outcome that's actually there and um, maybe compared to scientists who had a completely different approach to how uh, to create an outcome through the research. Um, I want to stick with uh, the storytelling quickly because, um, well, it plays an obvious role in, in your work, Camilla, but also, Mariana, we went to your presentation here in the show, and, yeah, you told us a lot about the work and what we see, and there's also sort of a mask that you apply to the chromatography um, images that kind of helps you analyze them and read them. And I also noticed that as Lisbeth and I were walking away, someone else was coming and you were telling a story, so... Um, what I want to ask both of you is what um, what research looks like because um, we often have this idea and you were also like, referring to the lab and like that research is like numbers and all these things but in both of your projects it, it seems that research is actually also like lots of interaction with people and like having them tell stories to you and going out and speaking to people so how, how was that for you 
did that play a big role, kind of storytelling and speaking to other people? Um, yeah, I think so. I think especially because I was moving in between these very different disciplines, uh, I used it also as like this uh, random guidance in my research. So I was talking to a farmer and he told me something and this brought me to another idea which I then consulted a scientist about um, and then I didn't understand something so I went back to the farmer and asked him again. So it was also always like this kind of ping pong in between um, talking to people. So I think um, that's also maybe something that design has potential to do to also contextualize um, an issue. Like a scientist maybe looks at something very closely and is an expert about it, but then I think the designer has the potential to bring it into a context and relate it to other people in other fields. Yeah, in my case, it was, um, I found it quite difficult to get scientists to talk to me. Like, I have scientists at home, so I would talk to them, and I ended up talking to a couple of string theorists. And, uh, but there was one case with one diagram where I, I was confused about the origin of it. And so there was a, a name in the copyright Named, and said Joan Baez, or John Baez, and I said, okay, I can Google that, and it turns out he's a physicist, and then I emailed him, and he was really kind and reached out back to me and said, yeah, I didn't draw that, my friend Cyril Krasnov did, and I went, great, so I talked to him, and then I said, okay, are you an artist, do you have an artistic background, why did you choose these colors, why did you start here, and he said, well, it started out as just a diagram, not an image, and so that was an interesting story, because I could trace the development of this image describing a very um, specific thing, which was a black hole, and it was a diagram, and it made sense in his paper originally in its original context. And then two years later, he had new technology, and he thought, oh, what if I add color? And he had no background, but he thought blue was cool, so he put blue in the background. And then he added, like, a, a gradient to the sphere. So now it was like a black hole in a blue void, you know, which as a designer, as a graphic designer, it was like, why blue? Why did you do this? It, now it doesn't make any sense. And then a number, like 10 years later, um, a graphic designer for, a, uh, for the publisher Nature saw this diagram and went, oh, that looks super cool, and then applied it to a totally different concept of the same theory. So the image is almost identical, except it's the technology used to make it, of course, is new. But it, uh, it's a totally different aspect of the same theory. So as like a researcher in this field, looking at that, it's like it started out totally fine and then it took on its own life and made everything worse. So that was like the storytelling in that. And they popped up throughout, especially um, in the historical context, like the origins of the theory of quantum gravity. There were a lot of stories like that where it started out totally fine and it made sense, but then everybody got really carried away and then it stopped making sense. So, yeah. Um, so could you tell us something about, let's say, the interaction between the, the researching and the making? Is it, in, in, I think, in your case, more obvious than maybe in, in your case, Camilla? Yeah, I guess the research and making were almost separate, um, in a sense, because the research could only get me so far, and it was almost entirely... Um, two-dimensional. In my research, I found that only one case of a scientist making a 3D model of quantum gravity. And actually, uh, and the scientist is Carlo Ravelli, and within, I think, two or five years of making this model out of keychains that all loop together to describe loop quantum gravity in three dimensions, um, they discovered, or they found within the math that loops were no longer 
or the links between the pieces of space were no longer the main thing. So the, the three-dimensional model became obsolete. So for me, my research basically ended there in the 1990s and I had to come up with a new three-dimensional way on my own of uh, telling the story of quantum gravity. Um, I think in my project, I had the feeling at one point that my research um, uh, brought me to the making, but then the making became the research again. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, <laughs> I felt like at one point I decided, okay, I just do this myself now in the way that it feels good, like right. Also, I think that's kind of this intuitive approach. But then from this, I learned again, and I was the, the learnings I had, I was also discussing again with, with the scientists. So it was kind of also going in between research making, research making, research making. I think it can just go on forever. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of scale, quantum gravity as a phenomenon, um, and in, in so in Marianne's um, case, we're talking about peak soil, which is kind of a moment in, in the future, 60 years in the future. And so it seems that both of you kind of deal with this from a design perspective and this question of how can you make something remote uh, understandable to an audience, right? And how do you approach these kind of questions? So is that is that a key role of a designer for you or is that something that you had to get into and how did you approach it? Um, I think it is a key role for designers and I think it's important and um, I think there's no one solution to approach this issue but in, in my case I think the, the visual translations of the soil, the chromatography was like a really lucky finding because um, for me the idea of, of um, representing something that is hard to imagine can be achieved through increasing or activating this issue. And I think design has many strategies to do so, either through visualizing or through making things experienceable. Um, but I think uh, many things are in the world, but we don't um, perceive them. So I think design can play a role in activating those or increasing them. Yeah, I would say that in my case, yeah, finding a way to bring attention to something that is not possible for us to be able to see ever, I think it'll be like 200 years or something until our machines are capable of um, finding direct evidence of quantum gravity. And so, like, it, the most important thing just became explaining the scale. Like, I would be talking to people and if I didn't tell them how big it was, they had no idea what I was talking about. And as soon as I started saying, it's this small, there are 16 zeros after the decimal, and then there's a number. And as soon as I started saying that, or saying it's smaller than atoms, it's smaller than atoms, like the inside, it's just then that helped. But then bringing, translating that smallness into the human scale was the biggest um, thing to do. And the only way that I found, of course, it's not the only way because we live in a crazy world, but um, the way that I found was storytelling. So if I can get inside people's heads and make them imagine the smallest thing that they can, then they can start thinking about how big quantum gravity is compared to the smallest thing they can think of. And, I mean, it is striking that you uh, are critical of the kind of diagrams that scientists use, but then in your presentation, uh, visuals are very absent, right? I was just wondering if you ever experienced something like either vertigo or agoraphobia, like a, a certain sense of not being able to deal with this phenomenon yourself. I mean and having to translate it for the audience, did you always have the feeling that you could 
understand it yourself? Um, I mean, I've been interested in this aspect of physics for a long time, so I think I became, I didn't realize how comfortable I had become with this idea of insanely small things. Um, but, so for me, when I asked my classmates, like, draw the smallest thing you can think of, and it was like a dot on the paper, and they meant literally the dot. They didn't mean that the dot represented something. They said, like, this is it. This is as small as I get, is one millimeter. And so, like, breaking through that was interesting. But I found that in my installation, because it is kind of a disorienting space, some people feel super calm, like you did, and some people can only stand in there for five minutes. And so the, the combination of, like, super condensed and then super expansive and the same thing is a really disorienting phenomenon for people to conceptualize at their own scale. And so I found that I don't... I haven't found the perfect solution for that yet, but it's, um, it's really interesting to talk to people about what they felt in that case. Um, so could you say something about the, so the public that you are trying to, to reach, or did you make it for a certain public? Mm, um, I think uh, I have uh, several audiences maybe for my project um, because um, of course one of my main messages is also just to you know show the value of soil and I think this is something that is evident for everyone but then um, looking at uh, the methodologies I'm using I'm of course also addressing more specific audiences like farmers or governments that have to deal with land and how are we going to um, grow food in the future um, so, um, yeah, I think it's uh, maybe several layers, but uh, as I said earlier, since soil for me is such a yeah, fundamental material, I think um, a lot of people can relate to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I had a lot of trouble figuring out exactly who I was trying to talk to. And so what ended up happening is my installation is for a broad public, because I want as many people as possible to feel comfortable with the idea of quantum gravity or feel comfortable talking about it because it's not so hard to understand conceptually, but I, a lot of people are afraid of it um, or just feel like they will never understand it. But my, when I was writing my thesis, I felt like I was speaking to physicists saying, why aren't you paying attention to the way you're representing yourselves? Why aren't you considering this uh, an important topic of representation when you know, if this keeps going on for years and years, then, you know, how are you going to represent yourselves and how can you be sure that the people in your own profession understand what they're doing um, and how that affects the world around them. And so my thesis ended up being towards physicists and then my installation towards everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Camilla, in your thesis, uh, you address, um, well, you kind of state that you're also an activist. I think you're, yeah, so in, in, in how, would you, how would you like to address your issue to, to uh, a world that can, can solve the, the problem of uh, yeah, the soil? Yeah, that was something that I was struggling a lot with because, of course, I am also just one human. <laughs> um, but um, I think my project can work on several layers. Like, I really see um, it applied on a very small scale uh, in a farm. But I also see um, how it could raise discussions on a political uh, um, uh, layer. So that's also why I added this uh, activist um, context and the, the manifesto I wrote about soil, because 
um, I think either way we have to look at it from both uh, scales. Like it's not we cannot solve the issue with only small farms, but we can also not solve the issue just looking at political um, institutions. We have to we have to do like it simultaneously. I think so. That's why um, I was addressing also both in a way. Um, Camilla, would you say that there is also like a an activist position to be held within your project or like a political dimension to it? Yeah, but it's activist. I would say that I am an activist, but it's kind of a weird thing to say that I would be like an activist for f critical physical design, you know? So it's kind of not something you would typically say would activists do, you know? They don't pick one thing and go, physicists should do better stuff, and I'm going to talk about it for the rest of my life. But um, in my practice, I do some graphic design for scientists and I take like a really critical approach on my own work and I make it a point to sit with the scientists for a long time to make sure I know what I'm doing and they know what I'm doing and so that whatever I produce actually makes sense. So it's like a slow activism, I would say, because I'm, again, one person. So how much can one person do um, in such an old and long distance kind of field, you know? But I think that's also like a path you can choose consciously. Is it something, are you the activist like going in the street screaming or are you the activist that is trying to reform the system from within um, or like from small scale like going up? So I think it's just a position or a perspective that you yeah. choose. And exactly. And I would say that I'm the activist who openly would talk about it with anybody who will listen, but also I'm on the inside. So, and I feel comfortable there but uh, maybe the scientists feel a little uncomfortable that I'm there. We'll see. Yeah. Great. That's um, a good point to end, I think. Uh, uncomfortable activism is a, is a good stance, I think. It would be great to talk more about that, but I think we have to round off. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lisbeth. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Design, 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 design